0: I'll be reading from Matthew fifteen twenty-one to 38 for this passage. So leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre in Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not give an answer. So his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that very moment. Jesus then left there and went along the Sea of Galilee. Then he went up on a mountainside and sat down. Great crowds came to him, bringing the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many, many others, and laid them at his feet, and he healed them. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking and the crippled made well and the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me for three days and nothing to eat. I don't want to send them away hungry or they may collapse on the way. His disciples answered, where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed this whole crowd? How many loaves do you have? Jesus answered. Seven, they replied, and a few small fish. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. Then he took those same seven loaves and the fish, and when he gave thanks, he broke them and he gave them to the disciples, and they in turn to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over the number of those who ate was 4,000 men and all the women and children.
1: Well, it's election season. It is election season and a big week in U.S. politics. At least, Taylor, you know, reminding everyone to get out and vote at the AMAs this past weekend and putting her support behind the democratic party not to be outdone her bestie kanye west hanging out with the donald and endorsing the republican and so we've got all this excitement going around and and i think like why don't we have that kind of excitement north of the border all we get is like colorful lawn signs that's as that's as exciting as it gets around here wow Well, we're in this series that's called Kingdom Politics, but we're not here to talk about backing politicians or their parties, although I will say, just as a brief aside, that it's important to be engaged politically, so get out and vote next week. Um, But I do want us to explore what it means to live out our faith in the public sphere. And so this morning, we'll talk about how, in a world of increasing polarization, the gospel challenges our propensity to classify and separate ourselves from the other, and invites us instead to acknowledge our shared humanity and our common need for God. Now, our reading today features two stories about Jesus' interaction with hungry people. One is about exclusion, and another is about inclusion, and both of them are about Jesus. Chapter 15 begins with Jesus in the familiar setting of his Jewish community, performing miracles, engaging in dialogue with religious leaders. But by the middle of chapter 15, where our reading begins, we find Jesus withdrawing from his own people into Gentile territory in the vicinity of two notoriously ungodly cities. So when we think about areas like that or cities like that, there might be certain things that come to mind. Uh, At Thanksgiving dinner this past week, my cousin was telling me about a trip her and her husband went on to Paris and they went to a show at the Moulin Rouge. And we'll just leave it at that. The rest of the details are not fitting for a Sunday morning. Or maybe you think about like the Strip in Las Vegas. You think about these places that had a reputation for just being like just so worldly and just so full of everything that good faithful people would like to avoid. Well, it's interesting, because the cities they went to, Tir and Sidon, Jesus had mentioned just a little while earlier. He says to them, the religious leaders that he was talking to, he says, it will be more bearable for Tir and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Now, he's pointing out just how off-base they are, but he uses these cities as an example. I mean, these are bad towns. These are bad places. Just stay away from them. And then here in this reading, we find Jesus is walking into the vicinity of these notoriously ungodly cities. And it's in this ungodly place that Jesus is approached by a Canaanite woman. So as if it's not bad enough that he's in this rough neck of the woods, he's approached by a Canaanite. And if you ever read anything in the Old Testament, you know that they are like the arch enemies of the Israelites. They're always battling each other over land. And so this Canaanite woman approaches a descendant of that ancient tribe whom the the Israelites drove out in their pursuit of the promised land. Now the woman's approach is humble, and it's respectful she comes to him and calls, "'Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me.'" Matthew tells us that the woman was crying out, and you can imagine the angst that she would have been feeling as she realized this dire situation that her daughter was in and her need for help. "'My daughter is suffering terribly,' she says.'" Now, we've had three babies born in our community in the last, like, ten days, Alomi, Danielle, and Simon. And we are so excited to welcome them into our community. Now, each of those parents, the parents of those little ones or the other extended family, think about what you would do if that little one was in trouble. Think about anyone who's had a child and think about how far you would travel, what situation you would put yourself in for the good of your child. And that's what we have here. We have this mother whose daughter is terribly sick and she's willing to go, into, go up to this person who she knew was kind of an arch enemy and ask for his help. This is a good thing for us to think about. Matthew Henry, a biblical commentator, he says, it is the duty of parents to pray for their children and to be earnest in prayer for them. Bring them to Christ by faith and prayer who alone is able to heal them. And I think there's a beautiful kind of parallel. We have this child dedication this morning and we have this passage about this woman whose child is in need and she calls out to to the Lord for help. But the thing that happens next is almost unbelievable. Unbelievable. It is one of the most shocking verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Jesus did not answer a word. Like, if you just read this story straight on through, you don't even notice it. But this woman, a foreigner, comes up to Jesus, comes crying out to him for help, humbly, respectfully, and the Bible tells us that Jesus did not say a word. How is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus would not respond but He doesn't. Well, evidently, she kept on talking. She kept on pleading, because the disciples go on to say, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. She didn't give up. Send her away. Just do what she says so she'll leave. She's bothering us. And then Jesus provides a rationale for a silence. Well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, Now, this was in keeping with what he had told these disciples. This really wouldn't have surprised them. In Matthew 10, verses 5 and 6, he sent the twelve, his inner circle, out with the following instructions, do not go to the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. So here he is reminding them, hey, I'm here for the people of Israel. That's who I'm here for. That seems to have satisfied the disciples. And perhaps they assumed it would satisfy the woman herself, but it did not. I've told a story before of a time when my car broke down uh, outside this little town called uh, called Gori. I don't know if any of you are familiar with it, but it's a real small town. And I was out on this country road, and and a belt blew, and my car just died on the side of the road. And I remember I walked about 15 or 20 minutes back into this little town, because I remember having driven by a garage. And so I went up to the garage, and I was just like, oh my gosh, man. Like, my car just died on the side of the road. It's completely dead, will not move. And I said, I'm so glad that there was someone here at this garage. Can you help me out? And his response was no. He said, I'm sorry. He said, see that like antique fire truck over that, over there? They've been asking me to fix that for months. And I decided today I'm going to fix that. I'm like, I know, but, but my car is like stranded at the side of the road. Like I have nowhere else to turn but you. And he's like, sorry. And he didn't fix my car. He did call a tow truck for me and towed me about half an hour in the other direction to another garage. But I'm like, how do you do that when someone is desperate in need? How do you not respond? How do you not meet their need when you have the ability to do it? Well, the woman, who may or may not have overheard Jesus' response about coming for the lost sheep, approaches Jesus, and this time she kneels down before him, crying out, Lord, help me. Have you ever looked in the eyes of a truly desperate person, a person at their wits' end? This woman has nowhere else to turn. Jesus is the last hope for her daughter, and as she falls on her knees, Lord, help me. This unnamed woman demonstrates, first of all, the simplicity of prayer. If you struggle to pray and you're like, I don't know what to say, this is as good a place to start as any. Lord, help me. Three words. And she perseveres in prayer. She doesn't let go of this. She knows that that this person has the ability to help her daughter, and so she doesn't give up. Now, if you can excuse Jesus' lack of an answer the first time and his response the second time when she comes kneeling down before him, well, it's totally out of left field. This is what Jesus says when this woman comes kneeling before him and calling out, Lord, help me. He says it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Jesus said this. So I was looking for a picture of a dog holding bread, and I found these pictures. So if you're a dog owner, maybe you want to try this little thing and post it on social media or something like that. Evidently, people think that's cute. Now I know it's it's not like maybe a, an appropriate moment to, to use a joke and enter humor into here based on what has just happened, but that's actually what one commentator suggests. I was looking and saying, like, what do how do people explain this response of Jesus? How do people explain the fact that at first he just completely ignored the woman? And then when he finally speaks to her, he says, like, he calls her a dog and said, I wouldn't give you any of my bread. Like, how do you explain this? And one commentator says, perhaps this was said half-humorously as he saw her faith developing. This is what one commentator actually suggested, that Jesus thought this would be a, fun, a good time for a joke. Like, oh yeah, I got her. Like, she's totally desperate here, and I'm going like, to call her a dog. This is going to be a great joke. Sorry, I think that's a really bad idea. But then why did he first ignore her? And why did he finally speak to her in such a dismissive way? Well, I looked up what some other commentators said. Well, how do other people explain this? One person said, well, maybe it was to test her faith, to draw her forward. In prayer. So he ignored her and then he calls her a dog and dismisses her to, to gr- draw her forward in prayer. Or maybe it was to humble her so low that he could raise her higher. In Matthew Henry's commentary, he says, There may be love in Christ's heart while there are frowns in his face. So that Jesus, he was just kind of testing her here. Or maybe someone else suggested it was to show his disciples that he did prefer the Jews. He wanted them to know that he was on their side and on their team. And I'm reading all of these explanations, and I'm like, I don't know. Like, none of these are satisfying me. It's pretty harsh to just ignore a person in need and then to call them a dog and dismiss them. So what was going on here? Well, this first story shows Jesus in a unique light, one in which he actually appears to have prejudice against a people group. But is it even possible for Jesus to react this way? But what if Jesus was experiencing something that every one of us experiences? We'll come back to him in the story in a little bit. But I was listening to an interview about a month ago with Mazarin Banaji, who's a social psychologist at Harvard and author of book Blind Spot, Hidden Biases of Good People. She's an expert on something called implicit bias, which might be defined this way, as the attitudes or stereotypes affecting our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. So these are the attitudes and the the beliefs that we have at an unconscious level. It's not something that we've really thought through, but it's just kind of wired into who we are. Biases have been measured in relation to gender, body weight, religion, sexuality, and race, and perhaps others as well. And so when I was listening to this interview with her, she talked about something she had developed called the Implicit Association Test, and she gave a link to the website. It's up there if you want to go and do this, but I will warn you. Now I'm going to share something with you, and this is a bit risky for me to do. Uh, but I, So I hope that you can listen to the whole context and not pass judgment on me in a message about not passing judgment on people. So I decided to do this test. So you go on and you fill out a bunch of personal information about yourself, and then you pick what thing you want to test yourself on. So the first, it was, I just picked the one at the top of the list, and it was about um, gender roles. And so it, the test was going to see if I had a bias towards men in the field of science or... or field of humanities. And so you go and you do all these little tests, and basically you have your fingers on two different keys on the keyboard, and then they throw words or images that are either male or science or female or humanities, and you just click these buttons. And you're just sitting here for like five minutes clicking these buttons, and then at the end, it spits out a result of how biased you are. And I go into this and I'm like, I'm not biased at all. This is ridiculous. And so this is what the test told me. Here's the next slide. Your data suggests a strong association of male with science and female with humanities compared to the opposite. And I'm like, no. And then what they do afterwards is they ask you to evaluate the test. How good do you think this test is? I'm like, bad. How accurate do you think this information is? Terrible. Would you ever do this? No. I'm like, this is awful. But then it, respo- it reminded that most respondents find it easier to associate male with science and female with humanities compared to the reverse. And I'm like, that's crazy. Like, I don't think that. I don't believe that. And this test is telling me that at some level I do. I said, well, maybe it was a glitch. I'm going to try another one. So I picked age. Uh, so this one was going to talk about the difference between do I can. Cons- you're basically looking at old people and young people, good and bad. So it's basically, it'll, be, it'll show a picture of an elderly person and then the word, like, horrible. And, like, do you associate them quickly or not? So again, fingers on the keypad. I'm like, I'm going to be really quick this time. I'm going to beat the test. Click, 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 and here's my response. Your data suggests a moderate preference for young compared to old. And I'm like, no, it didn't. I worked really hard at this. However, most respondents, and listen to this, even the elderly find it easier to associate old people with bad and young people with good compared to the reverse. It's fascinating stuff. And so there's something about this. You can go on and do it yourself. If you want to prove you're better than me, go ahead. Um, but I warn you. But doing these tests, I just felt like, how is that possible? How is it possible that these ideas uh, are in me at some point? But the fact that they're there is not really something that I can do about But there are so many ways that these misperceptions can lead us to pass judgment on others. And that's when we get into the isms. That's when we step over into the territory of racism, or sexism, or ageism, or ableism, or classism, or any of the other lists here. When this thing that's kind of unconscious in there is enacted in our lives. These isms develop when our unconscious bias is used to set a defined norm or a standard of rightness by which everyone else is judged. And people do this. Uh, There's all kinds of studies. I'll just give you an example of two of them. And I realize that this may make you a little bit uncomfortable, what I'm talking about, but that's a good thing, as we'll come to learn. Um, The first test was uh, these people were asked to select applicants for a job interview, and basically they were given a bunch of different resumes, and what the, the people who were doing the research did was they put kind of typically white names on some resumes and typically black names on other resumes, and they asked people to grade them, and what they found was in identical resumes, absolutely identical, except for the name, the people with a typically white name were twice as likely to get a job interview. So showing that there is bias at work there. And you guarantee you that any of the people saying that they're giving the interviews would deny that. But there's something at work. And when it goes from being this kind of like unconscious bias to actually affecting our outward actions, that's where we get into this this racism in this example. Or another example talked about like people selling online. So they put some phones for sale online and they had pictures of, uh, a phone being held by, a, a, uh, by a, someone with white skin and someone with dark skin, and they found that the person with the white skin had a 21% higher chance of selling their identical phone at an identical price. So there are these biases that are at work in us. What do we do about it? Well, I'm in the middle of reading this fascinating book by Ken Weitzma called The Myth of Equality... He is uh, a white, you know, privileged male, and he's writing this book about the situation he finds himself in and trying to, to explain to the masses like, what it's like um, and how these biases are at play and how they affect us. He says, instead of putting energy into denying that we're racist, a more transparent and honest response might be to admit our desire to be free from racist thinking and commit ourselves to searching for latent forms of bias within ourselves and then trying to address them. Now let's go back to Jesus for a minute. Is it possible that the Son of God experienced implicit bias? Is there something in which Jesus experienced the same thing that we all experience? A bias against a certain person or people group. Now you say, well, that sounds kind of crazy. But one of the things that Christians have always believed is that Jesus is both human, fully human, and fully divine. And if we're going to embrace the fullness of his humanity, then we have to understand that he would have been bound to the same things that we are as humans. Hebrews two fourteen and 17. Since the children, that's us, um, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, made like them fully human in every way. Nazarene Banaji makes it clear that these implicit biases are not character flaws. This is not something wrong with you. You haven't done something wrong because you have this bias. It's what you do with that bias on the other side. Remember, even the elderly are biased against the elderly, and racial minorities often show bias against their own racial group in these kinds of tests. Hebrews 2.18 and 4.15, because he himself, Jesus, suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. If Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, then I bet that he was tempted to classify people based on their race or their class or any of these other groups. I mean, if this is what Jesus experienced, and if he allowed himself to exclude this woman because of her race, gender, class, or some other factor, then we'd have a problem. But he didn't do this. He made an adjustment. So even after Jesus' silence... And his indirect and then direct remarks of exclusion aimed at her direction, the woman persevered. I mean, imagine her sitting there at her knees, Lord, help me, and he calls her a dog. And she's like, I'm not a dog. Like, I'm a woman. And I'm actually a respectable person. I'm an honorable woman. And actually, I'm suffering here. I don't deserve to be treated this way. And she responds, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Think of the woman's boldness, her bravery in pursuing Jesus, pressing him into action. Jean Vanier writes that it is the human heart and its need for communion that weakens the walls of ideology and prejudice. When we look into the face of the suffering person, we realize their humanity, and those categories begin to fade away. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The Canaanite woman, first rejected by Christ, receives the mercy she had begged for. So how does this turnaround speak to the way that we interact with those who are different than us? Again from Vanier, until we realize that we belong to a common humanity, that we need each other, that we can, be, that we can help each other, we will continue to hide behind feelings of elitism and superiority, and behind the walls of prejudice, judgment, and disdain that those feelings engender. So if we don't want to stay behind these walls, we're going to have to work at it. And that's the good news in this. The bad news is that we have these biases and we've got to deal with them. But the good news is that you actually can deal with them. You're not fated to to turn that kind of racial bias or that ageism or that classism and actually act on it. You're not fated to act on it. You can actually change this. You can affect this. Ken Whitesmith says, Overall research indicates that we are able to reduce or eliminate implicit bias through a few different things, counter-stereotypic training and exposure, education and awareness about bias, having contact with people outside our in-group, and examining and incorporating other viewpoints. So there are a few practical things that we can do that can affect how we actually act out these unconscious bias. So Banaji gives this example of filling your screensaver with images of people who are different than you. She says this will change those unconscious bias. If you just let these images of people from different cultures or of different ages than you, who are involved in different activities than you, then over time, it begins to change kind of the wiring of your brain so that you don't see this person as that foreign anymore. You begin to identify with them. So that's like a really simple practice. Any of us can do that. We could read different authors. We could visit different websites. We could listen to different music, eat at different restaurants, shop at different stores, watch different TV shows, talk to different people. And maybe above all things, we need to be afraid, we need to not be afraid to make mistakes because we're gonna bumble around when we do this. And I would recommend that all of us, first of all, not be afraid to make mistakes, but also that we not punish other people for making mistakes. If someone uses the wrong word to describe someone or someone says something that sounds a little off, rather than just shutting them down or calling them sexist or whatever, let's use it as an opportunity to explore that further and realize that the reason they're talking about is maybe because they want to grow and they want to learn. I was listening to an interview with Eula Biss on uh, an On Being podcast, and she was talking about this interaction she had with a group of students who were barely able to let themselves think. They were so scared of thinking the wrong thing. It's like people are so scared to say the wrong thing or think the wrong thing or do the wrong thing that they just feel paralyzed. And we've got to do something to break those walls down. What if I use the wrong term? What if I ask the wrong question? What if I make a wrong assumption? What if I offend someone? What if I make things worse? But we've got to take the risk of doing this if we want to actually learn and grow. Krista Tippett says, we need to allow ourselves to have inadequate conversations and not think that we have to begin by getting it right or perfect or complete. But we've got to put ourselves in a position of learning and growth. So, in the second story, we see Jesus with this overflowing compassion, which makes me wonder about how the encounter with the Canaanite woman might have affected him. Jesus was willing to let a crumb fall to a woman in need, and now he sets out to satisfy the hunger of a crowd numbering in the thousands. The people were amazed when they saw the mute speaking, the cripple made well, the lame walking, and the blind seeing, and they praised the God of Israel. Now, that last phrase is an interesting one. It suggests that the people in this crowd were Gentiles, dogs, if you will. So Jesus goes from dismissing this one Gentile dog who's bothering him to having compassion in a crowd of thousands of these Gentiles who are seeking him to heal and deliver them. Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I have compassion for these people. They've already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry, or they may collapse on the way. All of a sudden, the compassion of Jesus, the love of Jesus is just flowing out of him. As our compassion for the other grows, we become their advocates. And so here, Jesus is in one moment dismissive, and in the next moment saying, come on, let's put our heads together. What can we do? We've got to do something to take care of these people. He's now advocating on behalf of the people that he had previously just excluded. I read this great example of this wealthy uh, public school in Lincoln Park neighborhood of Chicago, where a group of students were protesting They were protesting the fact that their school was receiving too much funding for renovations. That seems backwards, but they were like, Why are we receiving funds for renovations in our school when there are so many other schools in our neighborhood that are struggling to get by? We don't want this money. We want you to give this money to somewhere else, or we're not coming back. Like, it's just amazing. Advocates for the other. It's a beautiful image. Matthew 15 37 says, They all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And so both of these stories end up with someone being fed. From crumbs to baskets of leftovers. It's a beautiful juxtaposition, reminding us that mercy is never in short supply. And this right here is the good news of the gospel. Jürgen Moltmann writes that salvation means to become whole. Whole. It means to unite that which was divided and split, disturbed and distorted, and make it right again. That's what salvation is all about. I was thinking about this passage, about Jesus' interaction with, with the Gentiles, and I remembered back to his dedication. Now, the ceremony was a little different for the Jews in the first century, but, but his parents brought him to the temple, and, and at one point, this elderly man named Simeon, he t- takes the child and he, he kind of speaks these, these words of prophecy and blessing over him, and he refers to this eight-day-old baby, saying he will be a light for revelation to the Gentiles. And in this chapter, Matthew 15, we see Jesus really coming into the fullness of this and realizing that that's who he is here to be, a light for everyone, not just for the in-group, but for all people. And his followers got it, They picked up on his example and they carried it with them. In this great story in Acts chapter 10, Peter goes to the house of a Gentile. He can hardly stand the fact that he has to be in this territory, but he comes to this conclusion after seeing that the Holy Spirit had blessed these people. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. Big change in the way of thinking. Paul, who the author of many of the New Testament letters, wrote in one place, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Man, that is such a revolutionary statement neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful message. It's the good news of the gospel. So I'll close with a couple of thoughts here. Rob Bell says, we are humans before we are all of the other labels we've cooked up to divide ourselves. It's a good reminder. We are all one in Christ. There are all these different labels, our age, the color of our skin, where we come from, our income, our abilities, all these different things we can divide ourselves. But at the beginning and at the end of the day, we're human. So we need help with this. Fortunately, we don't have to do this on our own. We do it with one another. And we can also call on God on our own. Get on our knees. Help us, Lord. The passages we read from Hebrews remind us of the ways in which Jesus identifies with our temptation to exclude. But there's this beautiful line that comes right after that one. Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Why don't you stand? I want to pray along those lines together as a community before we end this part of our time together. Lord, we acknowledge that in so many different ways we fall short. We recognize our bias against people who are different than us. And we recognize that sometimes we slip into these isms, these classifications and exclusion. We recognize that. But we know that you can identify with us because you are fully human and you have lived this human experience and you have been tempted in every way. And so we call out to you, Lord, help us to have eyes to see people for who they are, to see ourselves for who we are, and to live in such a way that we reflect the unity of all of God's people. God, help us to have the boldness, to have the bravery, to step out into unfamiliar care territory. Help us to be people who learn and who grow and who challenge and stretch one another in this. And We ask that you go with us, continuing to shape us into a community that reflects you to the world around us. With thanks, in Christ's name we pray. Amen.